so this morning, I want to talk about one of the most basic aspects of our lives, and that's what, what happens in our homes. Because often, what happens in our homes is what reveals who we really are. You want to know who someone really is? Ask their family. Ask their wife. Ask their husband. Ask their, their, their kids. Who are they when no one else is watching? And this is where we find ourselves this morning in Colossians, because we do have these big, grand doctrines of who Christ is. But also, we don't just leave it there. We look at our Christian interaction within the church, and then we get down to our households. Husbands, wives, parents, children, and um, professional bosses and workers, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But this morning, Paul's looking at the typical Greco-Roman household. And what is that? It's typically a family with the children, but sometimes extended family. They would have mothers and, and aunts and those related. But most houses probably had some kind of servant. Some of the reports are at least 30% of the Roman populace was some kind of servant. So servants were not just for the rich. This was a, a regular thing that you would have someone living in your house and there'd be expectations for them in your house. And so Paul's dealing with the Christian life in a household. And so we're going to clarify this morning God's design for marriage, God's order within the family, and um, the master-slave relationship, and hopefully bring some, some clarity to that. This is also going to be three of the, the major issues that we're going to be dealing with in our men's study, marriage, fatherhood, and work. And so the Bible has a lot to say about these things, and so we're going to be very practical this morning. Not a lot of deep theological concepts, but a lot of practical looking at how our identity in Christ and our relationship with Christ will direct these things within our homes. And then, and then there's important questions for us to ask because, you know, are we living as Christians every day? Or do we make a, a false, sacred, secular distinction? Meaning, do we say that what I do on Sunday morning is sacred and holy, and then what I do the rest of the week is secular, and it's separated from that? Because I would argue that a lot of Christians, and especially Americans, would, would have that. Okay, Sunday's holy, we've got to put on this, this face, read the Bible, do these kind of things, and the rest of the week is a free-for-all. And so this is a real good question to ask, okay, is my life consistent? Am I honoring God in every area of my life? And if I want to know, do I ask my family? Am I the husband or wife or child or worker that Scripture says I should be? So a couple things we're going to notice this morning. There's an order to everything. God has an order for marriage and for work and for things like that. The other thing we're going to notice is that there is no sacred, secular distinction. Everything has a spiritual component to it once you are in Christ. There is never a waking moment where something that you do is apart from your relationship with Christ. Now, how do we know that? We can't split up this section and just jump in at verse 18. So if you have your Bibles, you're in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 sets up everything that we're going to look at this morning. Colossians 3, 17. Remember last week I said that if you're going to memorize a verse in this chapter, memorize this one. And we have to read this in context with everything we're going to get into this morning. And whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And I will argue that everything, the responsibilities of the wives, the husbands, the children, the workers, the bosses, are all in context of 
whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord. And the title this morning is Households of Faith. We read earlier from Galatians 6, a bit of play on words here, that the church is referred to as the household of faith. But the church is not just what happens in this building. We are the church, and as the people of Christ, our households are all reflections of the church and are the church gathered in our own homes. And so we are households of faith, and the church extends into our own homes. So when we began this chapter, we looked at the heavenly perspective. We looked at the things above and not at the things on earth. And we look to Christ, who is our model and our motivation for all of these relationships. Not just in the church, but in our own homes. And we all, this also means that if we set our minds on things above, it doesn't mean that we check out of our earthly lives. But what it does mean is that it gives our lives below meaning. It gives them perspective because now we see things with the eternal end in mind. We live now representing our lives in eternity. And I I want to really solidify like we did last week, you cannot separate the doctrine from the practice. You can't separate a spiritual life from a secular life. There is no distinction for us anymore. For us who are in Christ, everything we do in our lives, in our jobs, in our thoughts, and in our actions, they all come from who we are in Christ. And so this morning we're going to look at relationships, the most fundamental relationships. And relationships, more than anything else, help to test and strengthen our sanctification. Why does God put people in our lives to sanctify us? Why does God give us marriage? It sanctifies us. Why does God give us children? They sanctify us. Why does God have us continue working? Because as we struggle, as we go through difficult relationships and difficult people, God grows us and teaches us through them in ways we we never could. It'd be so much easier if we were on an island by ourselves where everybody thought the way we did. There's, you guys are way too excited about that. But, but then how would we grow? If we didn't meet people different from us who challenged us, who rubbed us the wrong way, who had to teach us patience, had to teach us humility, had to teach us love, then we would remain in our immaturity. And so I don't want you to be immature We want you to be mature. And so in that, we are involved in each other's lives. And we do challenge one another. And God does use these relationships to grow us. So uh, I want to start reading in verse 17. And I'm going to read through chapter 4, verse 1. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, Submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do working heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Lord, you are good and gracious to us. 
And in a way that we can never understand, you put us on earth and gave us each other for our own benefit, for our own correction, for our own instruction, for our own exhortation, for our own challenge. That through life with one another, you grow us. You teach us. You sharpen us. You sanctify us. Lord, I pray for this body that everything we do would be done in the name of Christ. That everything we do would be done for Your glory. That we would not think that some of our lives are separate from You. That we could ever hide anything from You. That as we read Your Word, it leaves us naked and exposed. It leaves us open to correction and instruction. That it pierces body and soul. It pierces joint and marrow. That we might be instructed by it. We might be challenged by it. That we would grow into maturity as You desire. That we continue in unity in this church. We continue in unity in our marriages, in our homes, in our, in our workplaces. That You would be glorified in everything we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the things we learn as a Christian is a word that is tough for our American ears to hear. Submission. It, we, we learn to submit to Christ because in submitting to Christ, it humbles us. And it prepares us for submission and humility in our other relationships as well. And so uh, the book of Ephesians is going to be especially helpful this morning, chapters 5 and 6. So I want you to turn to Ephesians 5 and just leave your finger there. Because it's going to act as a commentary to our chapter. Everything that we discussed this morning is going to be discussed in greater length in Ephesians. So I can't spend a whole lot of time there, but just know that these sister letters that were written together really help complement one another. So before we get into this entire passage, there's a principle that's in Ephesians 5, verse 21, that's really helpful. But I want to start reading a few verses earlier. I'm going to pick up in chapter 5, verse 15, talking about the way that the Christian lives their daily lives. And this will set up the rest of our passage really well. Ephesians 5, 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Everything that's to follow is walking in a way that is pleasing to the Lord in, in wisdom. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Amen to that. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. And we discussed that last week. We are to be joyful people, not like the world around us, not to be foolish, we're to be wise. Not only joyful, joyful but thankful, verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is key here, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul in Ephesians 5 gets to all those same relationships. But before we can address those relationships, we must address submission. We must address coming under God's proper order. And so all of these relationships have some sort of mutual submission. And so as we look at each of these relationships, I want you to see that. And then you're going to notice a pattern here. In each relationship, each person has a role to play. The husband, the wife, the parent, the child. Everyone has a responsibility. Now, they are different. God has made us different, and that's not a bad thing. But each one requires some sort of submission of your own pride, your own desire to be king of all things, 
so that the other might flourish. And so also it's important for us to understand these are the ideal. This is how God has designed it, but we are sinful, and these things never work out exactly the way we want them to, but we are to strive for this. So just because someone falls short or something falls short doesn't mean we scrap it and throw it out. We continue to strive toward the ideal. So the first relationship we're going to deal with is the marital relationship. I could spend all morning talking about that, but I, I, I want to set the foundation as best I can, as briefly as I can, so we can understand what we're looking at here when we look at the commands to wives and, and husbands. So where we find the foundation for marriage and the foundation for everything relating to male and female is all the way back to the beginning. So turn to Genesis chapter 2 for me. So you want to know what, it, what the Bible says about marriage? Genesis 2. I know what the Bible says about husbands and wives, Genesis 2. I know what the Bible says about marriage after the fall, Genesis 3. Uh, we'll get there as well. So Genesis 2 is really helpful in understanding the dynamic between males and females. Because how God created things in the beginning is still the same, and it's still the same order. The order in which God created, this is pre-fall, chapter 2. Before sin entered the world, this is good. This is God's good order. This is without sin, uh, without any curse applied upon it. I want to pick up reading in verse 18. He creates all things, creates all the animals, and none of them really reflect him, reflect God in a way that they should. So he makes the man in his image, gives him the, the charge to keep and guard the garden. So he is a priest in the garden. We talked about this in Deuteronomy. But the man walks around by himself. Everything is good. This is the only thing in creation that is not good. Pick up in verse 18. Then the Lord said, it is not good. Notice the pattern. And the Lord made it, and it was good. And the Lord made it, and it was good. And the Lord made it, and it was good. But this is not good. What is not good? That man should be alone. This is, God recognized this and teaches us this from day one. We were created to be in relationship with one another. We are created for one another. It is not good to be alone. So when we look at last week, the nature of the church, there is no such thing as individual Christianity. You cannot be a Christian. It is not good for you to be alone. You're meant to be in fellowship with other believers. And marriage is designed for this, the most foundational relationship of human society. I will make a helper fit for him. I'm going to get to that word helper in a moment. So he talks about all the other animals, that he gives them them names, but none of them were good enough. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in in the place with his flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. Now, it's important to stop here. That word made is not the same general word for create that we see in Genesis 1.1. This is fashioned. This is formed. God built this and fashioned it for Adam. There's something specific in which the way that God made what came out of the side of Adam for him. And he had taken it from the side of the man. He made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then... The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. There's a lot of interplay here in the Hebrew. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother. We know Adam did not have a father and mother, but this we know is setting the pattern up. 
This is the, the, the pattern going forward. And hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Now, this is important for, before we understand anything else about marriage, anything about the role of a wife or the role of a husband, is we have to understand God's creation from the very beginning. From the very beginning, man and woman are complementary to one another. Their gifts correspond to each other. He reflects the image of God. And she reflects the image of God, although differently. They are equal yet distinct. I love what Matthew Henry, one of the great commentators, says about this. He said, God didn't take Eve out of Adam's head for, him to, for her to be above him. He didn't take Eve out of Adam's feet for her to be below him. He took her out of Adam's side for her to be next to him. That is the picture we see of equality. These two stand next to one another. She is a very part of him. This is how we understand the two becoming one flesh, because she was literally part of his flesh, and they are bonded together in one. And God says she is suitable to be a helper for him. Now, I want to bring that term up because it's mentioned twice here. And it's another one of these terms that becomes difficult in our culture. Because no one wants to be the helper. Everyone wants to be in charge. Everyone wants to be the man, all puns intended. But this word is a good thing. It is good to be a helper. And so oftentimes, culture likes to poke at the Bible, and, and the world around us likes to say, well, women are just secondary citizens and, and, and helpers. What I want you to see is that the, the Trinity is our model for marriage. The Trinity is our model for distinct yet equal. Anyone else in the Bible called a helper? The Holy Spirit. You ever see the Holy Spirit as weak or secondary? It is a good thing to be a helper. Jesus said it's a good thing that the Spirit come. He will be my helper in all things. The same way that the Spirit compliments the son, the wife compliments the husband. This is a good and beautiful thing to help in the mission and authority. Nothing is taken away from the Spirit by helping the son. And so we need to think about marriage in the same way that they are distinct. Just like the father has a different role in creation as the son, as does the Spirit, so do husband's and wives. And they're also going to look at Jesus' role in all this. Um, but there, there is a clear order here. Man was made first. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that, that woman was made for man, not man for woman. Yet, they're inseparable from one another. Neither one is independent of one another. There is a reciprocal nature that woman is made for man, yet man needs woman. And, and this is, is how God has, has created things. There's an order, but it doesn't mean that there's a, a difference in value. And we, we have to get that first. And typically the next question that I get usually is, well, what about Galatians 3.28, where there is neither male nor, nor female? This is a good question. It's an important question. Before the throne of God. It does not matter whether you are slave or free or Greek or Gentile or male or female. You are all equal before him. doesn't mean you stop having maleness and femaleness. doesn't mean that the distinctives that the Lord has given you are, are no longer in place, that God's created order is subverted. But it does mean that you have equal value even though you are distinct. You don't stop being a Jew when you become a Christian. Just like there are ethnic markers, there are biological markers in, in male and female, and that will always continue. But before Christ, we are equal, and we are responsible for our roles that are given us. And now we're going to unpack some of these roles. So for the married people here, hopefully you've looked at this before. 
And hopefully you continue looking at this throughout your, your marriage. And those of you who are not married yet, this will set a good foundation for understanding how marriages work. And this is God's order. This is what he has laid out for us. And no matter what the culture says, or no matter how your flesh fights against it, this is what is required of us. So let's begin um, in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands. First thing we must notice here. Wives, submit to your husbands. Just to clarify this. This is within a covenant marriage. This is not all women submit to all men. This is only within marriage. There's one distortion that I want to get out of the way very quickly. There's an important parallel here between Christ and the church. Again, Ephesians 5 is helpful. Ephesians 5, verse 22. I told you to keep your finger there. We're going to keep flipping back and forth. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, this word submit comes from two Greek words, under and order. So coming under God's order. Um, it means to come under the order that God has put in place. God has given the husband an authority. And the, the verb tense is really interesting here because it is all the emphasis is placed on the wife here. This is something that the wife does. Wives, you place yourselves under husband's authority. This does not mean husbands force your wives to be under your authority. This is something that is between them and the Lord that, that they do on their own, that they do as service to the Lord because they are submitting to him. Even if you are a poor husband, they are submitting to the Lord. We'll get to that in a moment. But in Jesus is the, the perfect example here. When, when our flesh wrestles against something like submission, what does Jesus tell us? Jesus submits to the Father's authority. No one would say that Jesus is powerless or insignificant. But in his role... As he walked on earth, he submitted to the Father. And so Jesus is our example in, in submitting as an equal, submitting to the order of the Father. And why do we do this? Why is God commanded this? Because it is fitting. There's another play on words in the Greek. Again, this is proper order. It is proper or appropriate according to God's created order. Now, this is something that is not a one-off command. This, this exact command is repeated four times in Scripture. Uh, you'll get the point. I'm not going to go over all those. But we had to look back in, in Genesis because this is rooted in the created order before fall. You're equal yet distinct. And so in this distinction, there, there has to be an authority structure. And so for women, you are to encourage and support your husband's leadership. This is a good thing. It is fitting. It is pleasing to the Lord. It is right order. So far as he is following the Lord, we are to serve and follow God, not man. If your husband is doing something sinful, this is where you are a help and a correction and a check to him. And so in good marriages, there is a great balance here of husbands who lead well, wives who follow well, but are a conscience to their, their husbands. And so we are building each other up in our marriages, and we complement one another in that. And hopefully, so we both grow in the Lord. So we've got the, the wife side to submit. Now the husband side. Love your wives. This is not licensed to be a dictator. Wives are to submit. They're not to be subjects. And so this has also been, been distorted. And so this is an active command. Just like it's active for the women to submit, it is active for the husband to love. Now, 
What does that mean? Well, thankfully, in the same chapter, a few verses ago, we get the, the foundation for love. Look at verse 14. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You want harmony in your marriage? Husbands, love your wives. Well, what does it mean to love my wife? Back up a few verses. If you are indeed in Christ, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen. Husbands, if you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, do this towards your wife. Have a compassionate heart. Be kind. Be humble. Be meek. Be patient. Bear with her. If you have a complaint against her, forgive her as the Lord has forgiven you. This is what it means for husbands to love their wives. And so here's how these things work together. Biblical love is sacrificial. The wife lays down her desire to be first. And the husband lays down his desire to be king over everything. He serves his wife as, as Christ loved the church. Like I said earlier, we need more explanation. Go to Ephesians 5. This is the most beautiful picture of the gospel that we get in our daily lives. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. If that's not a high calling, I don't know what else is. There is no greater love that we have seen in the man who lays down his life for his friends. That is the call on husbands to love their wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. The whole purpose of Christ's love for the church is so that his wife would grow, his bride would grow. That is, should be the desire of every husband that their wife grows that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water in the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Ultimately, as you seek for your bride to grow, it is for your benefit. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, you cannot separate marriage from Christ in the church. That's why when someone comes to me and says, will you do a wedding? I have to say no if they don't love the Lord because apart from Christ in the church, I cannot explain marriage. And this is, this is heartbreaking to those who, who you know and who love you. Hey, you're a pastor. Can you do my wedding? No. We have a very different definition of, of marriage. I cannot do a secular wedding. There is no such explanation of how do I instruct the husband and instruct the wife without Christ in the church. These things are so inseparable. In the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. This is a very high call to men. He didn't hate his flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it. How do I love my wife? Nourish and cherish her. Just as Christ does the, the, the church. How do I love my wife? How has Christ loved you? Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, back to Genesis 2, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Amazing. God creates marriage from the beginning before the fall so that we can understand the gospel. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Husbands who love their wives well make it easy to submit to. Those who are servant leaders, those who nourish and cherish their wives, fulfill God's design. And these two are inseparable. Submission and love. Respect and nourishing. You cannot separate the two. These, and God's design for marriage was built in creation like we've seen. 
but is also affected by the fall. Genesis 3 shows how this can go very wrong and what will govern these relationships. So back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. I'm going to read it quickly. But because of the woman listening to the serpent, this is Adam is given the, the lion's share of this. He's the representative of fallen man. But to Eve, this is what he says. To the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And now the way that marriage looks ugly is because of the fall, because of, of sin. It doesn't mean like, that our marriages should look like this, but we need to recognize that this tension we often feel in our marriages is because of sin, is because of the fall. And it is the gospel that's the answer to this. It is looking to Christ and looking to the church that is the answer to perfect harmony in our marriages and love in our marriages. And so the charge to the husband continues. Knowing that what happened in the fall has broken the, the, the marital bond and your, your wife's going to desire after you and you're going to rule over her, don't be harsh with her. This is literally is don't make yourself bitter against her, but nourish and, and, and cherish her. Don't take the authority that God has given you. Don't take the leadership that God has given you as, as license to look down on your wife or treat her as anything other than an equal. This is essential. And let's be honest here, men have a very difficult balance because we're given authority by God, yet we're not to abuse it or to be overbearing. We're to, to em embrace it and take it as a loving servant leader, but it's easy to err on either side. And so I want to kind of illustrate this, and a lot of you know what I'm talking about because we've had a lot of these conversations. I think in previous generations, and this is broad generalization, but I want you to, to kind of get where the error can happen here. In previous generations, they lean too heavy-handed. Men lead toward being authoritarian. I'm the man, you do what I say. We've seen this far too often, and I've seen it far too often in the church. Then we also got modern generations where men are too passive. And they are actually sinning in not leading their wives and, and not stepping into the authority of being the, the spiritual leader, not loving their, their, their wives well. And so neither are we too authoritarian men or are we too passive. And this is a very difficult balance. And God has wired us all, all differently, and this looks different for everyone. But what it ultimately, under, ultimately ends up being is a reflection of the gospel. Christ is the strongest leader we've ever seen, and he did it as a servant. He did it as washing his disciples' feet. He did it as teaching them, being patient with them, and instructing them. Yet he was bold when he needed to be. He is a lion and a lamb. And husbands, we need to be lions for our wives and lambs with our wives. And then there's one more important note here that I want us to get, is that not in this relationship or in any other relationship does it say only if they deserve it or only if they do it first. Nothing in here is dependent on the other person. Your responsibility is before the Lord whether they do it or not. You are to be obedient to the Lord whether they deserve it or not because oftentimes they won't. Amen? But we have to answer to the Lord. So now we're going to transition into our next relationship. I'm trying not to go too long today because I'm Already deep in here, but um, verse, verse 20. Children, obey your parents. This is also, um, we're going to address children in a moment. I want to address the word obey. This is another thing that I've seen distorted in the past. Submission is not obedience. Two different concepts. 
Submission, coming under the order that God has placed in the household. Obey means obey. Obey means you hear it, you do it. There, there is a, a hierarchy here. There's not a hierarchy in the marriage. There is a hierarchy in, in, in the household, though. Children obey. It means hear, pay attention, and do. This is a common command throughout Scripture for godly households. Because where parents instruct and discipline children, God is, is honored, and children grow up, and they, they honor the Lord. Those who are raised in fear and admonition, those who are raised in the Word of God, will not depart from it when, when they come older. This goes all the way back to the fifth commandment. Children, honor your father and mother. This is as basic as it gets. Little Jewish kids did not need to be taught this. But I think in 2019, we need to be taught this. I mean, our culture encourages, and I've seen people laugh at their, their children who are being disobedient. Oh, they think, it's, they think it's funny. So we have to guard this. Children, there's not a whole lot of children in here, but children, obey your, your parents because it pleases the Lord. But children, make, or excuse me, parents, make sure that you have an environment where your, your children know that they need to obey. And here's an important distinction, because it pleases the Lord. Far too often, obedience is made, because, uh, obedience is, is made about just pleasing your, your, your parents. Now, certainly do it for your parents. But ultimately, you are doing it for the Lord. When you disobey, you are disobeying God's created order. When you, obey, when you disobey, it is God you will ultimately have to answer to. Your parents may ground you or spank you, which I highly recommend. Um, work for me. Um, or, but ultimately, you will have to answer to the Lord. We looked at this in Deuteronomy. How harsh was it when you, when you disobeyed your parents? You'd be put to death. Because they know that that would be, would be spread. Those who disobey their parents would be stoned. And the parents would, would throw the, the, the first stone. So be, be thankful we've lightened up a little bit since then. This is pleasing to the Lord. And again, we see that it is most perfected in, in Christ. How do we learn how to be a good husband? Christ. How do we learn how to be a good son? Christ. Look at John 15.10. Quickly, it's going to be on the screen. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments. Oh, it's too hard to obey my parents. Jesus obeyed the Father. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We are commanded to abide in Christ and to be under our parents just as Christ was under the Father. This is what pleases the Lord. But in the last days, people are going to do things that do not please the Lord. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, just a couple books to the right. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, I want to read the, the first couple verses. These, here's where Paul describes the wickedness of the last days. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, and this goes on and on, right smack dab in the middle, disobedient to parents. This is a sign that they do not respect God's created order. And how often do we see this made light of in, in our culture and how important this is for God's orderly society, that, that all things are done in their order and children love their parents and obey them. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Verse 20, quoted in Christian households all the time. Verse 21, not so much. I didn't know this verse existed until I was an adult. But they are inseparable. Again, 
Verse, excuse me, again, Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you're, you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This adds to the difficult job of men. Why are mothers not mentioned here? Because let's be honest, this is not a typical trait of, of mothers. Mothers do not typically provoke their, their children. Guys, again, there's a very high standard for, for us. With authority comes a, a high expectation here. You are to direct and discipline your children, but not to abuse it, not to provoke them. And what, what does it mean to, to, to provoke, to kind of spur them on to anger, to over-criticize them, to over-discipline them? I'll bring back to my example from earlier. Previous generations, if you have... Um, you know, parents from an older generation, fathers dealt out compliments like they were $100 bills. Good job, son. Don't spend this all in one place. It was like, this is a big deal because you didn't see it very often. And so that's not a good thing either that if you're not encouraging and complimenting your children. These, these days, compliments are like junk mail. Everybody gets a trophy. Everybody's fantastic. Great job. I only had to tell you no five times. Good boy. No, that's not a good boy. We need to find that, that balance that we encourage our children, but discipline that we, they understand they need to obey us. Not to provoke them, but to instruct them so that they don't become discouraged. Now, this is not just your children being upset because you punish them. They should be upset. They should be broken over their, their, their own sin and their own mistakes. But this is an ongoing discouragement. It's like to, to put your child into a state of depression because you were always so hard on them. That, that they're just broken in their hearts because you are so rough with them. This is a real call to fathers. His children should be as sure of your love as they are your authority. And there is a balance that we have to walk in that. And just like our Father in heaven desires us to reflect his attributes, earthly fathers are no different. We want our kids to reflect the Father in heaven, and they should follow us as we follow him. Um, and so now we're going to get into the bond-servant-worker relationship. Um, I, I thought about this even this morning. This doesn't come up in, in the Bible. Uh, you know, for those of you like, okay, well, I'm, I'm not married. I don't have kids. I don't have any live-in servants. Um, and in a, in a platonic way, the Bible has no concept of roommates, um, there, 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 was the, there was no such thing. You know, you have guys who, who love the Lord and live together, women who love the Lord and, and live together. So there's, there's, an, there's a submission but an independent nature that's very unique to, to Scripture. So if you don't apply to one of these groups, um, there are principles here that you can apply in those relationships. Just wanted to throw it out there. Um, bond servants. It's helpful that Scripture uses this, this term. Um, because doulos in the Greek is, is literally slave. But in our minds, we think of imperialistic slavery. We think of forced, oppressive um, slavery that is a degradation of another person. And bondservant is a more accurate term, because in this, this culture, this is an occupation. Like I said, a third of, of the, the, the population was probably in some sort of role either where they would sell themselves into slavery or they would be in slavery to, to pay off a, a debt. 
And quite often, they lived with the family, they ate at the family dinner table, and they were a part of the, 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 the family life. So this is not kind of um, deep south plantation slavery that happens in our 21st century minds, and so we got to be careful to look at things in their, their biblical context. Not that it was a, a, a perfect system, but it is a very different system. So that's why the term bond servant, I think, is, is, is helpful. Um, servants, bond servants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. This is, this is obey, just like the, uh, the uh, children. There's, there's a stricter uh, expectation here. Obey. Do what is expected of you. Now, Paul's not encouraging slavery here, as many people would, would try to argue. He's recognizing it. This is just how things operate in the culture. And we don't always get to see culture change overnight. But we are to operate within the, the circumstance that, we, that we are, we're in. And so Paul recognizes it, and he seeks to redeem it. So obey. Now, what does obedience look like for a good servant in the house? And so just for sake of our application, going forward, I want you to think about this in each of your own jobs. Because I, don't, I know all of you, no one has any servants. No one is a servant in someone else's house. So directly, this does not apply to you. So don't just turn off your ears and say, this has nothing to do with me. But the same principles apply to us in our job. What does it mean to be a good worker, to be a good employee? Be obedient. Do what's asked of you. Those who are your earthly masters, and making a a, a distinction here. You have a heavenly master. These are earthly masters, lords, bosses, someone who has authority over you. Be obedient. Do Do what they ask. Again, going back to the caveat from earlier, unless they ask you to do something that is, that is disobedient, now we get how, what, what not to do and then what to do. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. So eye, eye service, kind of like you do it because you know that, that they're watching. Or you, you do it because you're hoping that they, they see you and recognize you because you're ultimately people pleasing. So there's a difference between an external motivation of I'm just, you know, I'm going to slack off until the boss gets here, then I'm going to work really, really fast. Or I'm going to go a little extra than I normally would because I know the boss is watching and I just want to please him. People pleasing is never a good thing, never a good motivation. We don't work for external recognition. Not as I service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. This is the game changer for the Lord. Something you're going to see in this last section of servants and and masters. Four times the word Lord is is used. This is what changes everything for the servant in this dynamic. Do it fearing the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, working heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance and you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything in the mind of a worker is to Christ, to Christ. He is my Lord. He is the one I'm working for. He is is the one that that, that directs everything I do. Being in Christ is the greatest reason you need to be a good worker. Because now I work for Jesus. Even if my station in life doesn't change. Even if nothing ever changes. If if I'm in this dead-end job forever, my value has changed. Because Christ has given me value. My motivation has changed because I'm working for him. A slave who is in Christ is now free, and he is rich. He is rich with spiritual blessings and eternal treasures, even if he remains a slave for the rest of his life to his earthly master. 
because he who serves on earth for Christ will reign in heaven with Christ. And that is the eternal perspective. Even if your job feels like it's slavery sometimes. So I want us to think about that. When we go to work, when we do our, our, our jobs, is our effort the same when no one's watching as when the boss is watching? How would, we, how would it change our work? Would our work be any different if I remembered, oh, Jesus is watching? Oh, I want to honor the Lord with what I'm, I'm doing. Would there be a great difference? If your work would be the, the same, great, then you are a good and diligent worker. But I think for most of us, there's, there's, there's this tendency to slack off when they know no one's looking. But the motivation here is no longer what they think, but what the Lord thinks. So continue to work heartily. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily. This in the Greek is literally out of your soul. Work out of your soul. Put everything you have into it because you are doing it for the Lord. He died for you. He came to set you free. You work for eternity now. And this, what you're doing here, is just temporary. Do we think about our efforts this way? Do we put our whole self into it? When someone gives you a job to do, do you do it well? And do they, they notice, man, what an amazing job they do. If it's something simple around church, hey, can you clean this up? Can you help over here? Do you do it with your whole soul? Children, when your parents ask you to do something, do you do it with your whole soul or you do it begrudgingly? With your head down, mumbling under your breath, yeah, I'll do it. Why can't someone else do it? Are we joyful people who do things with our whole hearts? Or do we just do them well only when someone's looking because really we want to please man and we're not thinking about pleasing God in our our efforts? The other part of this too, do you ever realize that if people know that you're a Christian, your work ethic is a witness to the Lord? They know that you're a Christian and you're a lazy worker who's not dependable, who shows up late, or if someone can't rely on you or if, if they can't trust you, what does that do with, with your witness? Oh, you're a Christian. The guy who's always five minutes late, always clocking out early, always on his, on his phone when he should be working. Do what, remember, everything that we do is unto Christ. And so do we connect that? That people are always watching us. He's, he's a Christian. But he's just like me. He's no different than me. So there, there must not be anything to this Christianity thing. So Paul realizes that there is no sacred secular distinction. Everything you do, you do unto the Lord. Knowing. Why do we work? Why do we have this mindset? Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Knowing. We work for a paycheck to provide for our families and all these things are good motivation. But ultimately... We work for an inheritance. Now, this is important. Our inheritance is secured in Christ. When he says you are mine, you have his inheritance. It is yours. It is kept for you in heaven. There's also an expectation that Jesus told us to build up treasures in heaven. The Father will reward you for what you do. Matthew's Gospel, he tells us that in chapter 6. In chapter 16, when he comes back, he says, I'm going to reward everyone for what they've, they've done. There's a sense that in Christ, your inheritance is secure. But there is degrees of of reward. You will build up treasures in heaven if you work for those things. And this is the motivation. I'm not working for a paycheck. I'm working to please the God who sent his son to die for me that I might be free. I'm, I'm working for the reward that cannot be taken away from me, that will be mine in eternity with Jesus. This is my motivation. 
And whether no one else sees it, whether no one else recognizes it, whether no one else gives me a participation ribbon, I will do this because it honors my Father in heaven. Now, it's important. We cannot work for our salvation. I'm not saying that. But because of our salvation, we work out of our salvation. And because Christ has saved us, we do everything for him, that he may be glorified, that the world may know that, that we are his, and we are different because he died for us. And he will reward those who are faithful. You want to hear on his return, well done, good and faithful servant. I entrusted you with two talents. You made it four. I entrusted you with five talents. You made it ten. You have, you have gained interest in my investment. And that reward is given to those who are faithful. But he will also reward those who are unfaithful. Verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Vengeance is mine. What this is telling us here is that servants, even if your masters are nasty masters and do not treat you fairly, they have to answer to the Lord. He will do worse to them than you ever can. He does not show partiality. He doesn't care if you are poor or rich. He hates the oppressor. He hates those who hold his people down. He hates those who take advantage of the weak and the poor. He will deal out vengeance. And there are always two sides to this relationship. You do what the Lord calls you to do, and He will handle it with others. This goes on in greater detail, and I'm not going to get there because we're short on time. In Ephesians chapter 6, but you can read this section, which is, which is longer. Um, and it just helps to understand that what everything the servant does, he does to the Lord. Now, our, our last verse here is weird because it's chapter 4, verse 1. One of the commentators, I thought this was good, uh, he says, all scripture is God-breathed. Chapter divisions are another story. I don't know why they made this chapter 4, verse 1. That's why uh, we're going to put this in its unit as it should be. It goes right along with the rest of it. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is not just for the servants. This is for the bosses as well. If you have someone living with you, treat them justly and fairly. Righteous and equal. Righteousness and equality. This is how those who are given authority are to act. It is so easy in our own flesh to say, I'm the boss. I've got someone who's now under me, and I want to lord it over them. Be righteous. Treat them with equality. Um, And this is to be distinct in Christian households because this is radical. Nowhere else in that culture would, would a master expect to give any kind of respect to a slave, were they to, to, to treat them fairly, to treat them as an equal. Now, they wouldn't be treated as, as, as bad as, as a lot of the slavery we've seen um, or, or, or we, we hear of in our country, but there was never an expectation that this person is equal to you, that you are to be righteous and you are to be fair and you are to be kind with them. Being in Christ changes everything, changes the dynamic, whether you're an employee, whether you're a boss. Remember that you're doing it to the Lord. So this is important as we sum all this up. You're not ultimately, wives, you're not ultimately submitting to a husband. You're submitting to the Lord. Children, you're not always submitting. You're not ultimately submitting to fathers and mothers. You're submitting to the Lord. Workers, you're not always ultimately submitting to your bosses. You're submitting to the Lord. Bosses, you're not ultimately the one in charge. You submit to the Lord as as well. So in our conclusion... I want to read this, this summary from uh, William Hendrickson, one of my favorite commentators. I think he brings all of this in, in chapter 3 together. It'll be on the screen. 
And he kind of gives us three categories. The all-sufficient Christ is also the source of life for household groups. They, too, must draw their inspiration from him. For it is from him that they drive their power to do what is right and proper, their purpose to do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, and the pattern of obedience. From Christ, he is all-sufficient for our power, for our purpose, and our, our pattern. And then just bringing this all home in, in Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect, loving husband to us, an unfaithful bride. He is the perfect, obedient son to an all-loving father. He is a diligent service, servant and a gracious master at the same time. And he also shows us, shows us the value of a bride to a husband because he shows us how a husband lays down his life for his bride. And he also shows us how to honor a father so that we can do likewise. So I want to close with where we started, verse 317. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that through him we have the power to obey you. That through him we have the purpose to please you in everything we do. That through him we have the pattern of obedience that we can follow after him. Lord, remind us that everything we do is unto him and through him and for him. Lord, I pray for the marriages in this family, that you would strengthen them in the Lord Jesus Christ, submissive wives and loving husbands. Lord, I pray for the families in this congregation, that you would bring them into order, obedient children and patient, loving parents. I pray for the vocations in this church, that you would make us faithful employees, faithful bosses who do everything unto you, that you would be pleased in everything we do, whether people notice us or not, because we have our eyes on eternal things, that we lay up treasures in heaven, that you may be pleased with us, that we may do everything to your name and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.